Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. Hope everyone had a nice July 4th break. Of course, we are recording this right after July 4th, but this episode would be published most probably in about two months. Uh, so I'm going to interview Mr. Drew Branneman today. He's a natural born entrepreneur. As Drew started his first business at 14. He then launched a highly successful internet business while in high school. That's amazing. I didn't even know be of business in high school. So that's that's kudos to you, man. So his ambition for finding the best investment vehicle for his earnings from his internet business is what led him to real estate. Purchasing his first two rental properties at 19 years old. So this is amazing. And also Drew earned his BBA in real estate and urban land economics from the University of Wisconsin, Madigan's, uh, Madison's Wisconsin School of Business. So uh, this is amazing as well. So welcome, Drew, to Wealth Matters Podcast. Thanks, Alpesh. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really like the show. I'm happy to be on it. Thank you. So we start with this question. Of course, I went through your bio. Amazing. When 19-year-old uh, started investing in real estate. But... Leaving aside all that, tell us interest, something interesting or funny about yourself. Yeah, well, one thing that real estate has allowed me to do is to to travel and travel like some pretty cool places. Not these weren't part of the real estate deals, but just something when you you know achieve financial freedom that you can do is you can go on the trips that you want. And right. the uh, in the year after I quit my full time job, and I already had, and we can, I already had ten properties at that point. Uh, either on my own or with a partner. And I went to, I was going to count before we started this, but I, I ran out of time, but I believe the number was 14 countries in that year following. And so wow. I went to a lot of cool United Arab Emirates, India, Japan, China, Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore, Philippines, all over Europe, you know, so I was able to do a lot of, um, and I've still done that. I'm actually, I'm actually going to Hawaii on Wednesday this nice. week and then was, uh, um, you know, was in Europe a couple months ago, but yeah, that is, um, that's been, that's not on the bio, you know, like maybe the hobbies, um, <laughs> but that's been like, that's, you know, my number one sort of, how do I, you know, enjoy myself, enjoy my time, definitely travel and then traveling to, you know, new countries really. So. No, that is amazing. So, uh, of course I figured out that you started investing back in, uh, back when you were, you were 19. So what was your very first investment and how did it work out for you? Yeah. The first property that I bought was the, you're talking about first real estate investment or first just anything or. Yeah. I would say first specific. any investment. Yeah. I mean, the first investment that I made was, you know, was not real estate. It was, I, I had started that internet business, like I had, you had mentioned, and I saved all the money from that business. And I started looking at what could I invested in. And, and I did sort of what everybody starts out doing. I invested Dogs. in the stock market. Yes. My parents are both teachers. So they, they have pensions, but they, you know, what extra money they did save, they did invest in mutual funds. And so I invested in the same mutual funds that my dad was essentially. And, um, you know, and sort of just got whatever those made. And it was, I believe it was, you know, like a flat to down market. I remember thinking this isn't too exciting. And I kept 
educating myself and seeing what else is out there and then then stumbled into into real estate so to speak and really liked what i saw and then eventually did my own deal when i went to college oh that's great so what are you currently focused on in real estate side yeah so today i have a, a you know a 200 million dollar portfolio of primarily primarily multifamily assets in the midwest but 2 years ago we made a shift in the business where most of those deals I bought with just really just two investors and they were all in the Midwest. Uh, but then in 2021, we shifted to the Sunbelt. So every deal we've bought since then has been in the Sunbelt. Uh, the, they were all in Phoenix. And then I've also opened up the business to passive investors because kind of over the, that 15 year period, I was working just with the these two investors. I'd have people that wanted to invest, but I wasn't really set up to take on any additional investors. So we've We've done that and, uh, you know, got going in Phoenix. I live in Texas now. So the next markets up are Dallas and Austin. So that's great. So, uh, you know, before the podcast, we were chatting about what your focus is in even multifamily real estate side. And you mentioned newer properties. Why do you prefer to buy newer properties? Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, they think like newer is it more expensive or you make less on them. And that has not been my experience. I, I understand like the price just in, let's say, total dollars for an older property. Yeah, it's usually less than a newer one, all right. things being equal. But but also <laughs> the income is a lot less on an older building. The The rents are lower. The operating expenses usually expenses as a percentage high. of the rents are, you know, if you're, we're talking in, in the Midwest, you might have a boiler where you're paying all this money for heat or down in the South, you got a boiler chiller and you're chiller, paying yeah. to, to cool all the, you know, to, to cool all the water for, to make the, the air conditioning. So, uh, really, so it comes down more to, you know, kind of minimizing variables and what I've saw on the older buildings we bought, and we've still bought a number of older buildings that we bought and renovated or done something to, but we've done just as well financially on the newer ones we bought doing lighter renovations. Um, so I wouldn't say like, it's just, you just make more on the the older, less nice stuff. And you actually, you end up with more, you know, typically more issues you need to figure out. Like, let's say you bought a building built in the 1960s, you know, in these markets that we cover, you know, in Arizona or Texas, you know, if they have not replaced the plumbing, uh, so the water supply pipes or the drains or the sewers, I mean, that stuff has already reached its useful life. So you are uh, on borrowed time or you're going to have uh, sewer breaks, uh, drains within the building crack. Um, you have these old galvanized pipes where they're rusting from the inside. You have bad water pressure and you're just kind of on borrowed time with those things. Eventually, someone's going to need to replace them. And if it's not you spending all the money on it, like the next buyer is going to factor that in and you're not going to get as much of a, you know, a pop in value potentially if you, if you, if they notice these issues. So sometimes, you know, we're sure when the market's so hot, people throw caution to the wind and they don't, right. you know, look into any of that stuff or their earnest money is already non-refundable, but you know, market's not always just, uh, you know, on fire, like it was in 2021, you know, in a normal market, yes. people inspect the building and they, they, think about all these things. So, I mean, that, that's what I would, what I would say. That's great. So, and, and when you say newer properties, do you look for, uh, how do you, um, identify them? Is it year 2000 and after, uh, are there, uh, is there any criteria? 
Yeah, I think so. Our, we're really va we're value add buyers, and so I kind of put it into two, you know, I'd say three buckets of types of deals we're we're looking at. If you were talking ages, so you'd have the deals that maybe let's say would be built from 1990 to now. Those are all built with modern plumbing, electric, roofing materials. So you're not yeah. going to run into what I talked about, where your drains are going to be, uh, you know cast iron and your your sewer in the ground be clay or something and you don't have the galvanized pipes you're dealing with copper or packs uh on the plumbing and you're dealing with uh abs or pvc on the drains and sewer lines so you're you're already starting with where you don't have to deal with any of these major capex headaches and then the the what value add we're in uh, it depends on the asset you know sometimes you can go in there and you can renovate the kitchens and bathrooms or swap out the appliances with stainless steel ones um, or other times. And honestly, the deals that we've done probably the best with when I was buying a lot in Chicago, because um, from 2013 to 2019, I did 15 full cash out refinances of all the equity we put into deals. And meaning, let's say we bought a deal for 5 million, we put 1 million down, we made it worth 6 million or more then put a new loan on it. That was a million dollars or more of loan amount, uh, loan proceeds. And then at closing to the refinance, that money just goes to you. You borrowed more. Uh, it's not a taxable event. And then we would then repeat the process. And out of those 15 deals, I think only two or three of them required any, any meaningful amount of construction. The rest were all operational value add plays, meaning we bought a building that was one year old from a developer, but he rented it out in the winter when the rental market is really depressed and he's 20% below market on rents. So yeah, I would prefer to buy those kind of buildings all day versus the other types we still do buy. I, if I could buy a one-year-old building and then just next summer raise the rents 10, 15, 20%, that's my favorite deal. And then right. my next favorite would be buy something that was built in the 19. 80s, let's say, where it's it feels old, but it at least still has those modern like building systems talking about where it, about in the 1980s, they started switching over to using copper for the plumbing and, and using PVC or, or ABS. It's just PVC, ABS is the same thing. It's the plastic piping for the right. drains and sewer. Um, people just seem to use the different terms um, depending on where you are. So, but um, they... And so like that, that type of property, we, we also buy, but then typically it's a, it's a heavier value add where there is not in unit laundry in it. Oh, and the, the cabinets are not nice. The counters are, um, they're not quartz or granite. So we're doing a much bigger renovation there. We're adding in unit laundry. We're renovating the exterior. We're painting the building. We're, uh, painting the cabinets, putting new door fronts on, doing the bathrooms, new floor, like doing a, you know, a full unit, but not a gut rehab per se, but we're still spending, you know, a lot of money, you know, a 20,000 a door type thing, you know, 15 to 20. Um, and then the third type, yeah, if you're buying an older one, you're doing a full gut rehab where you realize, okay, this, these building systems are old, we're going to need to be the one who is going to need to replace the electric that's uh, aluminum or this old plumbing. And so I've, I've only taken on one building like that so far. And then that was in Chicago and built it like in uh, 1900. So it was a, uh, but that that was still a really good deal financially. So you just got to know what you're getting yourself into. But if you'd say, would you like to buy newer or older? Uh, I mean, if you can get even close to the same returns on a newer building as an older one, like why take the risk buying an right. older building and having having all these extra 
what ifs, you know, okay, we buy this building built in 1960, you own it for three months and then your sewer breaks. That's happened to me. I've had, right. you know, yeah, yeah, more than more than five sewer breaks at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, some, I mean, some of them we knew when we bought, we camered the lines when we were buying it, we saw it was broken. We, we got a credit, but yeah, if I had to guess probably the number, it's more than five, maybe eight at this point. But in some of them, you know, it's cause we bought, um, you know, we've owned them for 10 years and then it happened later on down the line, but that stuff you could have somewhat predicted going, yeah, you're buying a hundred year old renovated building in Chicago. Uh, the, in, but they didn't switch the, you know, the, uh, the, the sewer out to the street. And then sure enough, you break somewhere in your yard and you're replacing it. We're on a new building. You got a new pipe there. So, right. So, uh, and I think you kind of uh, spoke about this, but again, I still have the same questions. Aren't newer properties expensive compared to older buildings? And how do you keep that in mind while underwriting? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think they, you know, they're more expensive in total dollars, I think is why why probably you're asking the question, but right. the rents are higher. The expenses as a percentage of those rents typically are lower because you're not paying most of the utilities. Like you might right. be an older one, less things are breaking. When they do break, maybe they're more money uh, to replace because it's newer and nicer. But um, no, they're they're not. I don't think they're more expensive. I think you, um, if anything, they could be could be cheaper uh, relative to the income because you're dealing with less uh, less unknowns. But even if they are more in total dollars, you're you're net operating income for that unit or for that property is going to be uh is going to going to be high relative to the uh the price you're paying so got it and um another question i have is how do you because you of course uh, in multifamily world or any real estate world we try to do some kind of value add to increase value right how do you increase rents or perform value add in newer buildings because older yeah, buildings like, we know, you know, you can pretty much rehab the heck out of it, you know, make it look nicer, newer, better, maybe put new park and whatnot. But newer buildings may have some of those amenities. Yeah. And so on those buildings, a lot of times it's more operational, uh, meaning it's like the deal from the developer I'm talking about where he rented all, all the units at the same time in December and January. And all in your value add is your re- redo you know when those leases come up for renewal you're offering 18 month and six month renewal so they can end in the prime ah, leasing summer, season yes and then and then when they come around the next time now you're taking full advantage of the the summer rents not the winter rents and in a lot of these markets where it's seasonal that could be a 10 or 20 percent difference because uh, like who wants to move around the holidays uh and especially not uh in the midwest when it's also snowing and super cold and all freezing when you're moving, but yeah, so that's, that's one. And then two, even buildings that are like five years old, some of them, you know, let's say five or 10 years old, there's still things you can do physically. It's not like you're saying where you need to re reprogram all the amenities and do a lot. It might be though, the whole building was painted just a flat white paint that doesn't look very good. And you could come in there and you can paint the walls, a nice light gray, and then already some of the light fixtures might look old. It was like the builder track lighting. You can put in nicer lighting. I'm thinking of one deal we bought where it was renovated in the 90s and all we did, and we ended up raising the rents over 20%. It was like part operational, like I'm talking about, where he could have just charged more, but didn't. So we we did that. Plus, we also, um, 
we also got rid of all the carpeting in the building, replaced it with vinyl in the bedrooms. And then in the kitchens, they had, I forgot which, white or black appliances. And we switched it out with stainless steel. And then in the uh, rear of the property, this was actually just a five unit in Chicago. But in Chicago, that goes pretty far. It was a $2 million purchase. And then... Um, wow. And and then we re we redid the two kitchens in the in the coach house in the back uh, building because they were just really cheap laminate counters, just cheap cabinets. So we did a uh, a full replacement of the cabinets, the boxes, and the countertop, put in a quartz one and stainless steel appliances. And that's in an area where like rents are very high, where our um, four bedroom unit that's a it's a two floor duplex it rents for like forty seven hundred dollars now um so it's something where when we bought it it was renting for three thousand something we we got the finishes more to like a two thousand the time like 20 standard and uh and then you know grew the rents like a thousand dollars a unit so oh, that's that's awesome uh now now it makes sense <laughs> yeah so let's talk about your journey what are some of the mistakes you have made yeah, I mean, I think, you know, kind of uh, early on, I didn't, you know, I never thought about getting investors like that sort of I, the first four deals I bought were just all with my own money. And then I didn't really know what was the next move to make. And so I got a full time job. Unfortunately, while I was working there, I met my first two partners. And then um, the, the three of us bought $100 million of property together. Um but I didn't, I didn't go out and like sort of seek that out. I just sort of told my story to everyone, what I'm up to. I met with them. I had deals printed out, ready to pitch. And I did, but I didn't, I didn't do that like proactively. And I, and I never really did until, until recently. And so, you know, I just sort of worked, I worked with them. Um, and then another family eventually, um, you know, since, since I started essentially. So I, I would say I should have been more proactive about, um, trying to grow a company and trying to, trying to obtain investors. I never really did anything. Um, if we're talking about like other mistakes along the way, I mean, the only, you know, the only mistake that I think that like jumps out that we're like, Oh, wow, that was a, a big mess up is we, we bought one office building. Um, and that wasn't the mistake actually, I guess you could say maybe that would be as well, but the office building investment went well, but we, when we were doing a lease renewal, uh, office leases have this, uh, like a common area load factor that's added on. So let's say you sign a lease for a twelve uh, a 10,000 square feet. That's what you're actually getting. You don't sign the lease for 10,000 square feet. You sign it for like 10,000 square feet plus this common area load factor. So if let's say the common areas of the building are 20% of the whole building, you actually sign a lease for 12,000 square feet. Well, I never knew that 10,000, you know, times 20, you know, added together uh, 20%. I didn't know that. So we just renewed them at like whatever their square footage was, 10,000. And then we realized, wait, we just kind of lost some uh, square footage. And it's, I'm saying it's a renewal. They expanded into a different part of the building, but it wasn't the exact amount of space that we we got back some space. We rented part of it to them. We measured it differently. So then we lost some square footage in the building and mm -hmm. we were able to explain to them, here's what happened. Uh, and then when they wanted sort of something from us, if you will, to update their lease. We said, that's fine, but we need to fix the square footage now. Um, so that didn't end up really costing us much, but just kind of, you know, uh, goes back to kind of, you know, makes me think about like why people should specialize. You know, at that point I had bought probably four multifamily deals, four shopping centers, one office building, one industrial deal. Hmm. 
you know, this is kind of like a generalist, you know, um, just whatever was a good deal. That's what I was doing. And then from 2013, let's say till now, every deal, but two has been, uh, two or three has been multifamily and every deal since 2019 has been multifamily. So we, um, you know, just started specializing and having better results from that as well. So that makes sense. What has been your best deal so far? Yeah. You know, it's the deal that I like the most is actually what ended up happening with, um, the, the, the office building when we sold it. Cause what, um, on a single deal, it wouldn't be this one, but I like how it, how it worked and I like to talk about investing long-term because so many people are just doing like kind of quick, you know, two, three year holds, almost like we own that office building for five years. We doubled our money. We put 930,000 down. So let's, we turn that into, let's say a million eight. Then we take what's equity we have from that. We did a 1031 into a shopping center um, that we bought for seven or so million dollars. We own that for about five years as well. Then we sold that. We doubled our money again on that deal. So now we turned just to use round numbers, you know, a million into four at this point. And then we went out and we bought two larger shopping centers, one for 8 million and one something and one for 9 million. And that happened all over a 10 year period. And so what I like to think about is we actually took like our, one of our worst deals just as a single deal office building. And then through doing these 1031 exchanges, it actually ended up being our best sort of series of deals because now on those two shopping centers we own now, the cash flow and the loan paid on on those every year is almost 900,000 per year. Oh, and wow. we put 930 down. So obviously this isn't the IRR or anything, but like if you just look as like simple person, like what's my annual return, we're making almost 100% per year on that money now without even factoring in the appreciation, just cash flow and then paying the loan down. And so I like to just, that's an example I like to talk about because I like to invest long-term and uh, something I was thinking about incorporating in our future offerings to investors is actually just sit, have the pitch be that like you're, we're going to invest in one deal. And then the plan is it's going to be a three or five year hold. Then we're going to sell it. We're going to do another one. So let's say we double the money in five years. We're going to do another one. And it turns into a four X over 10 years, uh, you know, four X return on your money doing two times where you double it. If you put a million bucks in, it turns into two, then two turns into four versus just doing all these, you know, one-off kind of five-year hold value add deals where then you don't need to do anything. You don't pay any taxes yet. We'll 1031 into the next deal or do a cash out refi buy us. They'll keep the first one. So I've been trying to, you know, figure out how can we, uh, incorporate that in every deal we do and turn it into like a longer series of deals. So. Got it. No, that makes sense. And what has been your worst deal so far? I think the, the second, uh, the second deal I bought, was this, so I bought four properties when I was in Madison. I think that's probably was my worst one where, you know, it, it had, it was one of the few deals I bought where it had no value add. So the main reason I bought it was because I had, like just enough money at that point to buy it. Like it, it's, it was a good relative purchase by a grosser multiplier basis. And I had enough money where I could buy something around 350,000 for my second deal. And so like, that was what, that was my thesis. I can invest all this cash I have, and then it's a good relative purchase. But the other three deals I did in Madison and most all the other deals that I bought since they all had some way where I was adding value. So I'd say that was my worst deal. We, I still made money on it, but 
I just made whatever the Madison, you know, market made in that time period. But so one one thing I'd always recommend to people is you want to find deals that have value add and be not paying up for that value add in a big way where you want to buy based on what's there today and then add value. It, so you'll get, you'll create value plus you'll get what the market return is. So kind of insulate yourself if there's a pullback or, or right. anything as well. Right. Is now a good time to invest in real estate? I mean, it's a it's time where you need to be careful. So I guess almost in a way it depends for who. If you're just getting started, I would say for sure it is because you're you, it's going to take a while to buy your first deal. You're going to learn so much on that first deal. I'd say, yeah, you need to get your learning out of the way and just get going. And, you know, if prices drop over the next year, like then your second deal is going to be a better deal than your first one. If you don't need to do any learning and you kind of already, um, you know, whatever, have obtained the, the education you need from the school of hard knocks that I think, um, you know, yeah, you it's, it's still a good time to buy. You just have to be really, you have to be really careful because right now, at least in the multifamily deals, we look at the sale uh, transaction volume is down a lot. It's down yes. between 50 to 80%. So what's going on is the, the, the properties that do sell relative to what the returns are on those deals as for the new buyer, they're still selling at where people are made, are accepting pretty low returns. So it's, it's a discount to a year and a half ago. Yeah. Prices on multifamily, depending on where in the country are down anywhere from five to 30%. But with how high interest rates are and rent growth flattening out, and uh, it's even buying maybe at a 20% discount to a year and a half ago, the deal doesn't still doesn't look that great if your interest rate is going to be six or 7%. So I still think it's a great, it's, it's always a good time to buy. I, I would say it just depends what, you know, what are you paying and how long's your hold period? If you're, if you're the highest bidder on a deal where there was 30 other offers and you're trying to own that for three years, no, that sounds horrible. Yeah. That sounds like you're paying <laughs> Uh, the highest price and your hold period so short, who knows what's uh, right. 2026 is going to look like. But if you, let's say you bought it and there's a not only one other bidder and your prices sounds pretty good and you're going to own it for 10 years. Yeah. I would bet all my money that real estate is worth more in 2033 than in 2023. So. Oh, that's great. No, this was awesome. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all the golden nuggets. Are you ready for fire round? Yeah, let's do it. Would you be changing a business or investment strategy because of the current environment where inflation is still high and we all think that either recession is here or it's around the corner? Yeah, what we've done is we're extending those hold periods like I'm talking about. Maybe two years ago, we would have been okay doing the hold, do our value add, this plan and selling it right away. We're not doing that. Now we're, we're doing value add deals, but we would say this is a five or a seven year type deal. Um, where I, I think, yeah, we've, we wanted to extend our whole period and then not take on as risky of deals, you know, like try to, try to minimize variables. So may, buy in better locations, better properties, ideally newer ones if we can. So that's what we're doing. That makes sense. What is your favorite nonfiction book? It could be real estate, self-development business. Yeah, I think, I mean, the book that I always, um, that I always talk about um, is uh, called Investing in Real Estate by Gary Eldred. So I guess 
that I'll, I'll give that one. Cause that was the book that got the light bulb going off in my head uh, <laughs> about real estate. So, um, Okay. I'm going to check it out. I was taking a note. <laughs> yeah. He, that's, it's really set up for beginners. So I think right. at this point, Alpesh, it's, <laughs> you know, you might not learn much uh, in yeah. that, but when, as a, uh, what would I have been as a 16 year old starting trying out, to figure yes. out? Yeah. So anyways, yeah. That's great. Any tool or website you recommend or you cannot live without? Yeah, I think if people can afford it, like CoStar is such a powerful tool. Oh, yes. They have all the properties for sale, market data. I mean, all that is, uh, so I definitely definitely would say that. Um, otherwise, obviously, Microsoft Excel, uh, you know, and this whole uh, Google suite of tools, like every, that's we run our whole business basically on that, so. Yeah. Any advice for real estate investors? Yeah, I think it's a make money slow, long-term kind of business. So I, I just, I have found more success myself. And when I look around at other people that are successful investing long-term and keeping things simple. So I know, um, you know, a lot of people like to wholesale deals or do, you know, flip houses and all that. But for me, long-term investing and kind of with a relatively simple business plan where we're not doing anything too complicated, we're buying apartments and adding value and, um, you know, sometimes sitting on them, refinance, sometimes selling them. Um, so I, my advice is like a lot of the, these, especially these families you see that made so much money in real estate, they just bought properties in, you know, New Forever. York or Chicago yeah. and just, they bought them 40 years ago when they were, you know, a hundred grand yep. and now they're yep. 2 million. Like it's kind of simple. So don't, right. you know, sometimes just embrace that. I agree. How do you give back? Yeah. You know, um, I, right now i mean if to the real estate world uh, through through my podcast i've been trying to my parents are both teachers um you know so i've been trying to do uh more to help educate people about real estate and just kind of offer something where it's not like it's there's no course or anything it's just you know free to listen to the podcast um i'd like to do more of actual giving giving back you know where um but i haven't uh i haven't found the time i also have a 5 year old son so uh, he's yes. got me every, every free second of daddy, daddy, daddy right now. Yeah. So, um, but I would like to do more. I remember when I was in uh, high school, I went to, uh, or grade school. I mean, I went to a Catholic grade school and we were doing, you know, great stuff. Like we'd go work at like a, a food pantry or people were going on mission trips. And so be nice to start doing something like that, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to make the time for it. So. I agree. I know how hard it is to raise kids. <laughs> <laughs> How can my listeners reach out to you? Yeah, I, I'm on uh, social media on every platform now, even signed up for TikTok, took the jump on that. Um, my <laughs> sister works in social media, so she's like, you got to get on TikTok. But yes. anyways, I'm at every every platform at Drew Brenneman. And then uh, if you want to learn about our company, Brenneman Capital, you can go to Brenneman.com. We have uh, information on our portfolio there. We have our blog. You can sign up to be a passive investor. We have a passive investing uh, guidebook you can download. It's 100 pages, teaches you everything you need to know about looking at these real estate syndication deals or what to look for in a real estate deal and all the different terminology. And then obviously my podcast, The Brenneman Blueprint, which is just on all the podcast platforms and on YouTube. So. Appreciate having me on, Alpesh. This was fun. Absolutely, man. I had a lot of fun. And of course, as in every podcast, I learned a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing.